0: This is Nyamshana's podcast. I am Nyamshana Prudence. While climate change is the crisis of our time, we are making slow progress at resolving this inevitable crisis. Climate change is a complex social issue whose effects are especially felt by individuals within society who already face challenges of inequality caused by unequal power relations based on gender and other characteristics such as socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, nationality, ability, sexual orientation and age. Women and men experience climate change differently, especially as gender inequalities against women persist around the world, affecting their ability to adapt. For women, as the primary caretakers their close relationship and dependence on the land is based on their understanding that life and livelihood is dependent upon the nurturing and caring of the earth on which everyone lives women especially indigenous women for centuries played a critical role in conservation of indigenous varieties development and sharing of traditional knowledge to conserve the environment They also adopted various techniques to adopt the realities of a changing climate. Women therefore diligently defend and protect the ecosystem because when a climate crisis such as droughts and floods occur, when forests are cut down to make way for large industries, when water sources are silted because of extractives or polluted with waste from industries, they are disproportionately affected yet women continue to be sidelined from climate action decision making and planning because they have been cast to the periphery in political and socio economic life most opportunities continue to assert themselves on climate action fronts have been severely curtailed consequently women's marginalization has become a damaging reality that can no longer be ignored. It is therefore fundamental that women's voices, experiences, and agency as primary influencers and shepherds of climate action is centered at all levels by recognizing their contribution for the struggle against the climate crisis. To achieve climate justice, An interconnected and intersectional approach must be adopted because climate change affects everyone differently. Hello there. My name is Nyamshana. Welcome to Nyamshana's podcast. Today, we are talking about the importance of centering feminist climate justice approaches in restoring our earth. I am delighted today to host Ruth Nyambura, a Kenyan eco-feminist and researcher working on the intersections of ecological justice in Africa. Hi Nyambura. Hi Prudence, how are you? I am very well. So good to have you on my
1: podcast. Thank you so much and thank you so much to Akina Mama Africa for organizing this.
0: Please tell me who you are. Uh,
1: okay, so my name is Ruth Nyambura, uh, although I go by Nyambura, and I am based in Nairobi, Kenya. I'm an ecofeminist, feminist political ecologist. I'm a researcher, I'm an organizer and activist. I presently convene the African Eco-Feminist Collective. And for the last 10 years, I have worked within organizations, with movements, both on the continent of Africa, in the global South, but also internationally, on the intersections of gender, economy, and ecological justice. So that has been my um The space in which my activist, intellectual and organizing work has gone to in the last, um, in the last decade. So focusing on climate change, climate justice, focusing on biodiversity loss, focusing on the work that different movements, especially women's movements, queer movements, feminist movements, Right. The kind of work that they're doing to, you know, sort of walk us through, think through a liberatory politics around climate justice, and environmental justice. But literally, you know, thinking about and working towards liberating um, the world entirely, not just within a narrow sense um, of climate justice or environmental justice. We're right. using environmental justice and climate justice as an avenue for uh, larger frameworks of liberation for all of us.
0: Wow. You are doing such amazing work. When, you, when, when I was introduced to you and I had the term ecofeminism, it was my, actually my first time to even hear ecofeminism. And the more I read about it, the more exciting it was, and the amazing work that feminists are doing. Thank you so much, Nyambura, for your work. Thank you. First and foremost, give us insight into the climate crisis as it stands currently and an African case that comes to mind.
1: All right. So one of the things when we talk about, um, I'm always conflicted when I'm asked that question because when you, if you Google climate change or the climate crisis in Africa, it sort of follows the same old, you know, uh, poverty porn trajectory of people dying, people starving and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always like, okay, which is actually true that, um, you know, we are a continent that contributed least in terms of greenhouse gas emissions contributed least in terms of, causing the climate crisis, but not only are we suffering the worst effects at the moment, at present, uh, the worst impacts of the climate crisis, but it is well known, well documented, well researched that we will suffer the most, you know, in terms of the impacts of um, the climate crisis. Of course, Africa, when you think about Africa and our own legacies of colonialism, when you think about neoliberal globalization, you know, we have so much in in common with, you know, the rest of the global South, be it Latin America, be it Asia, right, Uh, which are also uh, spaces in which, you know, these are people who also contributed the least in terms of the climate crisis, you know, but find themselves... um, not only in the midst of a crisis, but also within a global framework that refuses to address the structural causes of the climate crisis and continues to outsource the so-called solutions to them. So that is true. That is one aspect of it in terms of this is a continent that will like, is experiencing and will experience um, the most devastating impacts of um, the climate crisis in its entirety. Right. I mean, think about, for example, that, you know, how agriculture is, um, you know, is such a, you know, is one of the biggest employers, continues to be one of the biggest um, employers on this continent. You know, very many countries still rely on agriculture for employment, but also in terms of food. Right. Um, Especially, you know, uh, smallholder farmers, the work of pastoralists, the work of fisher folk, small fisher folk. Right. Um, Majority of the people in particular countries still rely on, you know, these sources of food. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you think about agriculture specifically, most of the agriculture in Africa is rain fed, relies on rain.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. And with the changing patterns the weather it's becoming more and more unpredictable yeah. right uh to predict when the rain is coming and even when that prediction is possible you know the quantities are less and less so when you'd have for example two three weeks of you know um rain you know falling right when farmers would wait for two three weeks or so or a month or a full season of rain or rainy season you know the the seasons are shorter sometimes yeah. also a Longer, right, leading to the destruction of food crops, and we've witnessed this in in Kenya in the last few over the last few years in terms of our um, you know our long rainy season, right, we've, which we've just um, come out of. You know, when it rains so much that. Um, crops are destroyed but also people's lives uh you know people's livelihoods are destroyed people are killed you know there are landslides houses are destroyed you know so there's so much when you think about that the uncertainty you know around the changing weather patterns the changing climate then you begin to see the devastation both in rural areas but also in urban areas so i'd say that um in a nutshell, it's, it's both of these things, you know, it's, it's definitely there's a crisis happening, right? But at the same time, um, it's important to put that crisis in perspective that this is not, you know, the structural causes of this crisis are not because of the people of Africa, right? So it's important to keep that in mind.
0: Right. Um, you've talked about that, the the the, the, the effects of the climate crisis, but how specifically does climate change affect women and minority groups?
1: So when we think about women, I mean, we live in a patriarchal world, you know, when you think about it, we live in a, no, when you think about it, this is, this is, this is a fact we live in a patriarchal world. I mean, just to mention, yeah, just to mention, for example, um, you know, questions of power, Right. When you think about women, you know, and women, for example, women are not a minority. You know, in most countries you go to, you find that women are actually in terms. Safe. Of, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're not a minority in terms of their the of their numbers, for example, but they are minoritized When you think about questions of power, right, right. When you think about patriarchy, they become a minority, but in terms of Um, their contributions to society. When you think about their numbers, they're actually not a minority, right? So when you think about, uh, specifically when it comes to climate change, and I want to think about, you know, agriculture, for example, on this continent, especially smallholder, peasant agriculture, which is largely uh, done by women. So basically African women feed us, you know, Um, this is work that is done by women when you think about the whole, agricultural value chain and where women stand, whether it's a small plots of land back at home, but also when you think about them as informal food traders, or when you think about them as laborers on other people's farms or also their farms, you begin to see, you know, the centrality of of, of women, right? And so when you think about the climate crisis, but I want to think about the climate crisis again in relation to power, because sometimes there's a way we talk about the climate crisis as this, you know, as this thing standing, and we're incapable, or it—it's sort of like the ways in which you talk about the climate crisis. It obscures the questions of power or the structures that we're actually talking about. And they started by saying that we live in a patriarchal world. So, you know, we already, women already sit in a situation where, you know, because of the legacies of colonialism, because of the enclosures of the commons, because of the privatization of land. So all these legacies, you know, have meant that, you know, women access, are able to access less and less pieces or parcels of land, whether to farm, whether to do whatever they need, to do so, you already they're already coming into the climate crisis. Finds them, you know, in a very particular situation around patriarchal, you know, patriarchal male mediated access to land or natural resources. If you are going to open it up, so the climate crisis exacerbates already in existing inequalities. Right. Right. And patriarchal configurations, for example, around natural resources, around the ways in which women and minority groups, you know, whether it's uh, queer, trans people, uh, uh, people living with um, disabilities, old people, for example, you know, indigenous people, right, who are not just minoritized. Um, in in particular ways, but the legacy is not just they're not just leaving the legacies of, coloni- of, of colonialism, right. right? But also like sort of like still, uh, you know, um, African governments still deal and treat indigenous people in very similar ways to the ways in which colonial governments treat yeah. indigenous yeah. people. So that's what I would say that. Um, the climate crisis, when it comes to agriculture, have made it very clear but that uh, the climate crisis is exacerbating and transforming, you know, inequalities and marginalization for women and minority groups on this continent. And that is the danger, right, that you're not just, you know, we're not just going through a crisis that in itself is destructive, totally destructive and totally dangerous, but that it's already transforming existing inequalities, like patriarchy, you know, in particularly horrible ways. So it's it's facing a crisis, but facing a crisis that, you know, has its own head and tail and shoulders and whatnot, and whatever it latches onto, it destroys. And those already on the front lines of the crisis, those already who are experiencing uh, particular intersecting marginalizations like women and minorities, right, you know, end up experiencing the worst impacts of uh, the climate crisis simply because of their, you know, of their location in society.
0: Right. You talked about indigenous women, and yet they've played an amazing role in combating climate change, in in protecting the environment, combating climate change. Would you like... uh, give us insight into what the role Indigenous women have made and continue to make in combating the effects of climate change?
1: It, you know, it's one of the things that always, I always remember this when I'm doing my work, when I, when I sit and I'm extremely angry at the state of the world, when I'm extremely angry at um, what climate change is doing, or when I'm extremely angry at the legacies of colonialism, I always remember, for example, that Colonialism, the project of colonialism, attempted to destroy fully, right? Not just indigenous people or indigeneity, you know, but people's cultural practices on this continent, people's ways of life, people's lives. But it didn't succeed, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That even amidst all the violence, the death and destruction, you have a people across this continent you have cultures across this continent that have stood the test of time right and that is a testament to the beauty and to the strength right of the people on this continent Right. But also to the cultures of this continent, but also to the possibilities of organizing and the possibilities of Africans and indigenous people of, you know, their possibilities of imagining new worlds, new and liberated worlds. So I think about indigenous women in, in, in that particular sense, but also think about the fact that, you know, when you think about, you know, uh, pastoral communities where often um, partial communities or nomad communities are often gendered as male. When you think about a pastoralist, you know, you think about you think about the Maasai, you know, you only think about the, the, the male Maasai man with his livestock uh, through Kajiado, through Nairobi, or if you go to Tanzania, you know, where, um, you know, uh, because of the colonial legacies, you know, you have Maasai in Tanzania, Maasai in Kenya, but they're basically uh, one big family that was, you know, or their lives were disrupted by colonial borders, but you never quite think about Maasai women, for example, or you never quite think about, you know, uh, Turkana women or whatnot, you know, as, as, you know, and you never think about them in terms of a specialist because of how uh, particular identities are also gendered. Right. So I think about their role in, you know, when you when you dig deep, you look up, you you find out, you know, about their role in, you know, conserving indigenous breeds of livestock. You know, when you think about their role in terms of conserving, protecting indigenous, indigenous um, uh, agricultural seeds, you know, farming seeds. Right. And you begin to see that this is knowledge that's passed on from generation to generation. You know, nice. all this. Who've literally have literally created what we'd call laboratories, laboratories in their own homesteads, in their own lands, exchanging knowledge. You know, knowledge, as I said, passed on from generation to generation, right? Right, passing it on to a new uh, generation. Livestock breeds, you know, s- uh, you know, agricultural breeds, farming breeds that are even more versatile. You know, to the changing weather, to the changing weather patterns and to the changing climate. So you're literally, these women are literally scientists. Right. But of course, because of, you know, how science has also been constructed, you know, the, 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 the racist colonial legacies of science and also patriarchal legacies of science. The work that these women do to provide for their communities, to sustain their communities, to nourish their communities, to nourish the land. Right, is never seen as science, right. right? And of course, I do. I, I do want to. I'm, I'm careful to say that I'm not necessarily interested, or or um, you know, indigenous people are not necessarily. Actually, they're not interested in having their knowledge measured up against so-called Western knowledge. And of course, Western knowledge borrows very heavily. Not just borrows, even steals you know, from the knowledge of indigenous people, from the knowledge of local people, from the knowledge of colonized and minoritized people across the world. So this is not to say that this is an appeal or a call for Western science, I'll put it in quotes, Western science to acknowledge indigenous knowledge or the ways in which indigenous people have been able to respond to the impacts of the climate crisis, but to really put it out there that, you know, the fact that, we have a long history mm-hmm. of women's indigenous women's knowledge.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, of sustaining their communities of sustaining themselves or at, of seeing the world for what it is and to adapting and what has, you know, and this is, this is a miracle. As I said earlier, when I, when I was beginning is that in the face of patriarchy, in the face of colonialism, in the face of, you know, uh, cultural genocide that has been, you know, was pushed on them because they face cultural genocide, you know, not just from the colonial period, but even the ways in which African governments choose to continue dealing with them. When you think about the Ogiek, when you think about the Sengwer, right, you continue to see these legacies of cultural genocide, um, you know, erasure and stealing of their knowledge, continuing. Right. But even despite that, you know, they continue to, every single day, continue to show that, you know, they have some of the most brilliant solutions and ideas, mm-hmm. not just to combat the climate crisis, but also around ega- living an egalitarian world or co-creating egalitarian worlds. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, my, my mother was a farmer. She, she, she grew Irish potatoes in Western Uganda. And we saw how she preserved breeds of like the most resistant, resistant Irish potatoes in 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 the region. And I kept wondering how they keep the se- the seeds of of the next potatoes, and how the potatoes thrive every other time. And the knowledge that they kept, you know, uh, holding on to and 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 sharing with with w- within themselves, and when the climate started changing, they saw how to maneuver and 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 see that their breeds are, are um, continue to grow and I think this kind of science even while not documented is amazing is so amazing and so even even then, as we talk about um all these we I would like to us to touch on two what does an intersectional feminist approach addressing climate change look like you know i I, I love Uganda
1: so much <laughs> i'm not going to lie in fact, um, Uganda was one of my first um, when I was much a baby activist, a baby organizer, baby researcher many years ago. Uganda was one of those was one of the first places i went in which i had long conversations with not just ugandan women right but like ugandan farmers as a whole you know um and and you know and of course uganda is so rich in one of the things that we say in kenya is that uganda is so rich in food like you right. know you just step together like it's not bananas that are going to kill you
0: <laughs> it's beans it's, we it's everything it this, we yes. brought out our sweetest pineapple
1: Yes, absolutely. No, abs- abs- what is interesting is that um, I actually buy pineapples from Uganda.
0: Oh, really? <laughs>
1: yes, my local grocer gets um, because they come through the uh, the Busia border, which we share. So. You know, so actually eat, I love, I I consider uh, Ugandan pineapples, the sweetest, the best, the most beautiful in the world. But so saying that, um, you know, yeah, Uganda is, um, has been very, personally for me, has been beautiful in terms of, you know, one of the things I don't know if you know is that Uganda and and Rwanda are actually um, the second in terms of bananas and um, especially beans. They're the second center of diversity because you know um, uh, beans, for example, are not um, are not indigenous to the continent of Africa. We like to think that everything is Where indigenous, is but they're, no, they are not indigenous to the continent. Um, Where of did they come from? We have to go to Latin America.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, wow.
1: Yes. Yes. You know, so bananas, uh, beans arrive in Uganda and then Uganda and Rwanda and, Rwanda and, and, and uh, Rwandese and Ugandan women, you know, of course, back to this whole laboratory and experiments, they, they continue to breed different varieties of seeds of, of, of bananas and, 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 and beans. And like you, you have this huge variety. Between uh, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi, but mostly Uganda and, and Rwanda, and this is a result of the knowledge of women. Yes, you know, you know, over the last century. You know, it's 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 beautiful and it's amazing. That's something to say that even that when something is not necessarily indigenous to the continent, uh-huh. you know, you have women collaborating. You know, you know this familial social structures that women find themselves in right. in terms of you know um you know I mean, again it's it's really beautiful when i think about it that's why i'm saying that um you know there's so much to think about and one of the saddest things for me in the last few years you know one of course is the push to pass the biotechnology bill in 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 uganda which would sort of be calling uh, sort of GMO bills being passed uh, on the continent, you know, the, uh, bills, or uh, laws that would basically open up the continent for genetically modified foods, but also the disgusting push to for genetically modified bananas in Uganda. I mean, why?
0: Why you go
1: to Uganda? You have all this. The varieties are shocking. You know, you you can barely count the number of varieties. Yeah. You know, and, and this idea to push, it really shows you that this varieties, genetically modified uh, banana varieties, are not being pushed for the people, but they're being pushed in order to carve up and open up, um, open up the country for transnational agricultural agribusiness corporations to come and take a hold. But it has nothing to do about thinking about the politics of hunger. In fact, they're not interested in the politics of hunger. They're interested in the business of hunger because hunger is a business to corporations and to particular um, foundations and, and NGOs and whatnot. But what we need to be thinking about is the politics of hunger, the structural causes of, of hunger, right? But I'll return to that in terms of like uh, techno issues. But now back to your question, because I know I digress, but I had to because, um, yeah, as I said, Uganda is very special to me in terms of the food and, and the diversity and, 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 and women's, uh, the role of peasant women farmers, you know, um, you know, in that whole country in terms, especially in terms of bananas, when you think about bananas when you think about beans. But now to your question around what is, you know, um thinking about intersection an intersectional approach to um, you know to addressing uh, climate change, just intersectionality. So I mean this is a very also a very interesting question to me because we, we sort of sit in a we sort of are in a space where intersectionality has come to mean everything and at the same time means nothing. Everybody is doing intersectionality. Everyone is an intersectional feminist. Intersectionality is in every single thing. Um, Governments are talking about intersectionality. The United Nations is talking about intersectionality. You have corporations uh, responsible for human rights abuses talking about their intersectional approach, you know, and it's you know, it's one of those things where, and I know that uh, Kimberly, uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who crafted the, the term itself, not the idea, because intersection, the idea of intersectionality has long existed. Right. But like crafted the term itself, especially popularly as we, as we know it now, has also remarked about how, you know, it's amusing to her and sad in parts, the ways in which it, the, the term intersectionality has travelled the world because it often travels in problematic ways. When I think about intersectionality, one of the limitations of intersectionality for me, let me start with that. Intersectionality is often presented as layering of identities. So my name, I'm Nyambura. So Nyambura, black woman living in Africa, living in Nairobi, um, you know, basically layering of my identities, whether I'm working class or middle class, or if I'm poor, if I'm queer, or if I live with a disability and whatnot. It sort of becomes that, right? A layering of identities or a competition of identities. But when we really think about if I am to go back into reading Kimberly Crenshaw's ideas, but also thinking about intersectionality for me as, fe- as an ecofeminist, but also as an anti-capitalist. And I will say in a bit why me saying that I'm anti-capitalist is important is because thinking about intersectionality as layering of identities doesn't take us too far. It doesn't take us too far in the journey of liberation.
0: Mm.
1: What we really need to be thinking about is how structures of oppression, be it capitalism, be it homophobia, transphobia, patriarchy, you know, mobilize particular identities, whether it's working class, whether it's you know you're queer, whether you're trans, whether you're a farmer, whether you're indigenous, how the structures of oppression mobilizes identities,
0: mm.
1: right? We have to think about that. We have to think about power. We have to think about structures. But thinking about identities without thinking about questions of power leaves us in a space where, well, I can be a very wealthy queer woman living in Nairobi yes it's Nairobi it's 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 in the global south it's in Africa which is going to be impacted the most by the climate crisis mm-hmm. but do you really think my life i'm going to be affected or impacted by the climate crisis in the same way that informal women traders on the streets of Nairobi who get chased by the city council every single day or you know peasant women in Moranga or Kirinyaga or indigenous people in Lake Turkana, you know, the Turkana and Lake Turkana, who are not only you know, resisting against, have been resisting the construction of this dam, Gibetri, which has proceeded anyway, but also, you know, um, watching as their lake you know, shrinks because of the impact of the climate crisis.
0: Okay. You see?
1: So we have to think radically about identities and we have to go back to questions of power and questions of structure. And this takes me back to the question around an intersectional feminist approach. So an intersectional feminist approach, as I said, for me would be to think about how, you know, particular people, particular, with particular identities, you know, um, experience structures of oppression how they come into a space, and how climate change, which is a structure of oppression and marginalization, transforms their lives. So that, for me, is how I would think about an intersectional feminist approach. Thinking about climate change as a structure that comes with its own, as I said earlier, it comes with its own thing, but also transforms existing structures, structures around class, St- structures around you know sexuality um you know structures around you know if you're peasant if you live in a rural area geographical location you know age for example we often don't think about age also remember that the majority of women farmers for farmers in africa for example are over the age of 60 right you know so we often you know also just that when you think about climate change it's not just affecting young women you know we we, we love to I know youth is beautiful, but also youth is fleeting. We forget that the food that we eat on this continent is largely produced by an older generation, an older population. What does it mean to be in your 60s, you know, having lived through colonialism or just neoliberal globalization where African governments were forced to defund the agricultural sector? You know, you've had to survive in the last 30, 40 years of neoliberal globalization, but you're also facing pressures around access to increased pressures around access to natural resources, such as land, such as water, because of the climate crisis, because one, um, land is becoming more productive. Um, You can't really predict when you're getting weather, I'm sorry, when you're getting rain, but also um, the patriarchal demands around land. You know, where you're sort of at the back of the queue when it comes to being able to access the spaces. So right. I'd say that it's thinking about climate change as a question of power, not as this thing that, you know, it, 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 it's sort of like I, sometimes I hear people talk about the climate crisis or climate change. I'm like, I don't understand what you're talking about. It, it feels like you're talking about the air. And I feel like even in our own work, if you're really going to do advocacy, organizing work, we must really bring conversations and questions of climate change in terms of everyday conversations and everyday realities. So right. questions of class. People understand questions of class. Questions of age people understand questions of age. It's very able, it's very possible to translate patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Right? But you can't be like you can't just use climate change you know, in a way that obscures what is actually happening. So that is what an intersectional feminist approach to addressing the climate crisis or climate change looks like, at least um, at the very foundational level of getting ourselves into agreement around what is actually happening.
0: Right. Um, we are coming to the end of our conversation, but, um, and you touched this uh, a bit, but can we talk about the threats presented by the pervasive neoliberal capitalist ideologies that inform policy, decision-making, and action?
1: Intersectionality is great, Right. right. And I, I use a framework, fully use a framework in my work. It's an important framework. And you really think about it, especially when you engage with Kimberly Crenshaw's work, but when you go further to, you know, uh, Claudia Jones' work, who had long theorized about, you know, the, you know, the, the, the lives of Black women, being Black, you know, um, you know, being Black, being a woman, you know, but also living under capitalism living under you know a murderous government right because which which is most of most of our governments are are basically not interested in actually governing they're interested in uh, giving us the most oppression as that they can milk out uh, to us but so ideology is important for me and you've talked about neoliberal capitalism neoliberal capitalism is the most pervasive or has been the most pervasive ideology since at least since for the last 40 years, you know, um, an ideology, of course, grounded in capitalism an ideology pushed by international financial institutions, such as the world bank and the IMF, Mm -hmm. you know, pushed by, um, Western governments fast practice in Chile, you know, um, you know, in the Pinochet area, and we've seen in the last two years, you know, what was really interesting, the, 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 the last climate conference in 2019, which was held in Madrid, was only moved to Madrid because finally, there had been protests, obviously, over the years, but finally, you know, all this protests had ended up in one space after decades of neoliberal globalization. As I said, Chile was the first experiment in terms of neoliberalism in the world. This was the laboratory, of neoliberalism, finally, the protests erupted in such a way that completely, I mean, I think you saw it, you know, and this is interesting because the climate meeting was supposed to be held there and it was moved. But it was beautiful for me and for many of us to see that this fierce resistance, which had always been there, but had been come with new energy, right? And saying that neoliberalism does not work. People are not commodities. The earth is not a commodity. Nature is not commodity, right? So, you know, you have this ideology that dictates to African governments that you cannot fund the public sector, you have to defund healthcare, you have to defund the education system, you have to defund public arts, you have to defund agricultural systems, right? You know, systems that, you know, had been working and that so many had relied on, you know, um, from the period of, uh, this is of course the first 20, 30 years uh, after most African governments had, most African countries had gained um, independence. And we continue to see that, the neoliberal ideology in the so-called. And I know there's a question around policy work. And one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, What's being pushed is, in terms of solutions to the climate crisis, one, Western countries, Northern countries refuse to take responsibility. At least they may take verbal responsibility or responsibility in paper, but they continue when it comes to what's tangible, what's actually necessary. Reparations, for example, reparations for the climate crisis right? Uh, Because we did not start, we did not create this crisis we find ourselves in. When it comes to thinking about technologies, what is being pushed is technologies such as genetically modified foods, geoengineering technologies, technologies that are going to alter the earth, right? But nothing around halting expansion of fossil fuels, facing out fossil fuel um, um, extraction. We are not seeing that at all. Instead, we are seeing northern governments, and even at policy level, even at the United Nations, when you think about what's being negotiated at the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, what's being pushed at United Nations Environmental Programme, UNEP, uh, also what's, you know, um, what's also being pushed at multilateral spaces such as, you know, um, what is this thing called um, that people go to in January in, in, in Switzerland, World Economic Forum and the World Economic Forum is sort of, has sort of become, is sort of overtaking the multilateral space, sort of becoming one of the spaces where we have billionaires, you know, philanthropic capitalists, you know, deciding that we know how to solve each and every crisis, especially the climate crisis. So the structural causes, which one goes back to capitalism, two goes back to the rolling back of the role of the, of the, of the, of the state, or of the public, right? These are not being addressed at all. Patriarchy is not being addressed. You know, the solution to patriarchy becomes, you know, why don't we make more African women farmers investors, like turning, you know, uh, agriculture into a business, which may sound good on paper, but when you realize that the economies of scale do not benefit you know, uh, small farmers or peasant farmers. And you realize that because of the economies of scale, it means that eventually they'll have to move out of their land. And of course, what takes over is industrial agriculture. And we've seen the impacts of industrial agriculture in, um, in Asia and in Latin America. It does not feed people. At all, You know, when you think about a report came out, uh, you know, a few years ago by Grain, which is a fantastic organization that works on climate and agrarian justice, showing that globally, especially in the global south, more and more land is being concentrated in the hands of industrial agriculture. Less and less land being concentrated, you know, is in the hands of small farmers or peasant farmers. But guess what? It's small farmers who are feeding people. Yeah, on this continent, farmers who are feeding people with very little to no government support. Yet, when transnational corporations like Monsanto, Bayer, and whatnot come onto this continent, it's very easy for governments to give them tax breaks, tax incentives, and yeah. whatnot. They get all that; they get all that support. These are these are organizations managed by mostly white men in the global north, right? But it's African women you know, African farmers feeding us and they can't even get even a quarter of the support yeah. that these companies get. And don't forget that industrial agriculture is a big uh, cause of the climate crisis because yeah. if you have chemical fertilizers, if you're having chemical inputs, the, chem- the, 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 the the agribusiness corporation is 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 completely tied into the fossil fuel industry because you need... You need you need both. Uh, you need fossil fuels. You need you need this. You need this to be able to produce um, the chemicals that you're using. So it's interesting to see how you know forty years mm-hmm. of it being very very obvious that neoliberalism does not work.
0: Yeah,
1: it, right. it exacerbates existing inequalities. You know, it has destroyed people. It has destroyed livelihoods. It has contributed to you know the mass exodus of people from rural areas because they have been rendered hopeless because of no government support yeah. and have found themselves in in informal you know what we call slums you know or informal you know spaces in the cities to act as surplus labor to the wealthy right so people who probably would have been able to live off their land and i don't mean just as farmers but live lives of dignity Are forced into lives of mostly like, I mean, you're forced into whether it's. And not dignified at all. Yes, absolutely. And to work for the wealthy local elite and expatriate elite, right? So your lives back in the rural areas completely destroyed, but then you also come here being able to make a living. And of course, with the climate crisis, I'm sorry, with COVID, we've seen what has happened. And especially in, at say in Kenya, where we had lockdowns, yeah. um, in Nairobi, for example, completely locked down um, twice now, by the be- very beginning of oh, how difficult it was for, well, even working class or middle class people to survive, but like for the poor living in informal settlements, you know, who rely on a daily wage for survival and where suddenly everything has been closed. You know, the difficulties of living, people were literally trying to figure out. We we're seeing, we were seeing uh, video clips on television of, you know, people literally trying to cross, using border borders, you know, trying to cross to leave the, 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 the city, right. you know, illegally. because they can't survive. And I cannot blame them because you have a state that's not providing for them. You can't survive in a city
0: Mm -hmm. without,
1: right? And also what we know, and I know this um, for Uganda also, is that, you know, one of the ways in which the poor in cities survive, especially in African cities, is that they rely on their families or their relatives back home to send food parcels. Yes. You know. And this was impossible because the board, you cannot cross, but nothing can cross. So you, you don't even have that small support, small but very crucial support system in terms of food. You know, whether it's bananas, whether it's beans, whether it's flour, you don't even have that. And then you also don't have a daily wage. And you also have a landlord who expects you to pay rent mm-hmm. because, of course, the government hasn't issued, uh, you know, you know uh, a hold to uh, rent payments right so this is this is what we are, this is what we are talking about you find yourself in this situation and then you have the climate crisis and that's why i insist that the climate crisis cannot be seen in isolation it has to be seen in relation to i mean it basically has to be seen in relation to the way the society functions and that's why i always go back to even when i'm doing political education I always go back to, you cannot start talking about the climate crisis without talking about, I mean, the climate crisis from 2021. You start from industrialization, you start from colonialism, you know, you talk about the enclosure of the commons, you talk about what happens when people's environmental knowledge, you know, is, is, is you know, condescended to or is robbed, you know, when the memory is stolen, right, to neoliberal globalization, to now, uh, false solutions being pushed—false solutions like market mechanisms, techno fixes—that do nothing to halt this, the to halt the climate crisis, but continue to overburden countries in the global south, right? right? Mm-hmm. Who really did not did not stop this crisis, but also enriches the same corporations that have caused this crisis and continues to enrich the global north and, you know, and allows them to continue with business as usual, even as they pretend that they are actually taking charge or leadership of the climate crisis.
0: Right. Um, I, I want to think about solutions, if any, <laughs> that, that, are, that can save us from this crisis. So from an eco-feminist perspective, can you share with us some of the climate, um, feminist climate justice solutions that Africa and the entire globe need to adopt? Just briefly. I will say this. Um,
1: I I always struggle to say that something is a feminist solution. (laughs) I I, I say that um, feminist approaches and feminist principles are important and they're beautiful. But I also... I'm cognizant of the fact that not everyone who is pushing forward radical solutions necessarily calls themselves feminist, right? Um, So I'd say that I've had a very long conversation with you around a feminist analysis and what that may mean and what feminist approaches and what they may mean for us. But I think that if I was to, as an eco-feminist, as a feminist political ecologist thinking about power, and thinking about, um, you know, um, thinking about gender, for example, I mean, thinking about how women are impacted by the climate crisis, and particular women, when you think about peasant farmers, and I've spoken a lot about peasants, I've spoken a lot about smallholder farmers, who are largely women and indigenous women, for example, and, 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 and those who are minoritized, you know. So in terms of solutions, one, what's important is that, and I'll start with this, normally I would end with it, but I'll start with it. Mm capitalism is a dead end right any single solution or proposal to halt the climate crisis that does not adequately address capitalism or is not interested in dismantling capitalism you know in Kiswahili we have something that we say that I'll say it in Kisraeli and then I'll interpret it. It's basically, you know, you're running a race that's going nowhere. You know, it's, 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 you're, you're gonna, you know, you're, you're basically, it's one of those, like you're run you're, you're jogging or running from the same spot and expecting to win the marathon. You're not going to win the marathon because you're not moving. Right. You're expending energy running in the same sport and jogging. You'll sweat, you'll, you'll do all that. You know, and if someone was to see you, it'd be like, "Oh wow, wow! You, you really, really, really had a good race, but you only jogged or ran at once." You know, and we have to—if we don't think about the structural causes of capitalism, sorry, of of, of climate change, which is capitalism—if we do not dismantle it, we're not going far. We're not going anywhere. Actually, we'll find ourselves in the same spot. We may delay things for a bit. But nature owes no one respect. We don't control nature. Nature will punish us. When I think about the environment itself, when I think about the heat waves, when I think about the flooding, when I think about all that, but beyond that, because the climate crisis is, as I said, is exacerbating inequality, already existing inequality, such as patriarchy, right? So, you know, patriarchy, livelihoods and whatnot... So you're also experiencing these inequalities tenfold or a hundredfold. And guess who's experiencing it? Those on the front lines of the climate crisis, those who have always, always, you know, experienced the worst when it comes to inter- intersecting, interlocking inequalities and marginalization. So that's the first thing. Capitalism, we must dismantle capitalism. Second thing, it's important to think about It's important to be very clear about what's being pushed at the multilateral governance spaces. These spaces are important. I'm not here to say that the UN system, we should boycott the UN system or not. I'm not going to say that, although there is a lot to be said and a lot has been said about the corporate capture of the United Nations system on the multilateral System, Right. And those who are able to continue engaging in those spaces, those who believe in a radical new world must continue to push on the inside. Right. To halt, you know, to block proposals around techno fixes, carbon markets, you know, market mechanisms, basically the whole range of them, whether it's conservancies putting uh, wildlife and and forests into conservancies as if local people and indigenous people, you know, never used to live side by side with, 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 with along, alongside uh, wildlife. The reason why there is human-wildlife conflict right now is because of enclosures of land. That is what needs to be addressed. You know, it is not the fault of indigenous people. It is not the fault of local people. You have to go back to what has actually happened in terms of the ways in which land relations have changed. Because if you had to do that, you'd have to see that privatization of land has been a problem continues to be a problem right and so it's that it's pushing back on problematic proposals in multilateral spaces uh, multilateral environmental governance spaces such, such as the UNFCCC UNEP mm-hmm. CBD and actively pushing for you know solutions like you know agroecology and, and and food sovereignty and i must say that i start with food sovereignty before i go to agroecology because agroecology is the technical practice of it. Food sovereignty is a political project of it because we're not just interested in eating food. You know, when la Vie, when peasant people, when you know, peasant, uh, indigenous people across the world push for food sovereignty as a solution to the climate crisis, they're not just talking about being able to eat because I can eat trash. I can take something from the dustbin and eat it. I'll be full, but is it good food? Is it healthy food? It's not. Absolutely not. Yeah, the, food, the vision of food sovereignty is radically transforming the economic system and trade system. Starts with capitalism again, trade system. The trade system that sees Western governments or Northern governments being able to subsidize their farmers. Right. But, farmers but governments in India, Kenya, Uganda, Mexico cannot subsidize their farmers because if they do, They'll get sanctioned. Just even that remaking and dis- dismantling the international trade system, where African governments, where Africans, where Latin Americans, where Asians—you know—where the global South cannot adequately invest in those who provide food, you know, cannot adequately uh, invest in their compensation, you know, where strong intellectual property rights around seeds. Are being pushed, which is criminalizing the rights of smallholder farmers to save, sell, and exchange their seeds, where you know private property rights are being pushed, where everything, land is being privatized. Yet we know that, you know, traditionally and throughout the years, one of the ways in which women are able to access land is because of like the commons or communal. And this is not to romanticize community land or communal land. This is not to say that they were not imbued with particular. And eco-power relations, but the reality is the politics of the commons, that vision and, and, and the ways in which the structures were made, it is possible for us to reimagine, you know, ways in which women, ways in which those who are minoritized are able to access land, for example. And I don't just mean it in rural areas. This also is in urban Areas, right? It's also, a solution is putting a hold to um, the fossil fuel extractivist economy. So much more economies can bloom. It's thinking about clean renewable energy. And not clean and renewable energy where only the because I'm seeing this increasingly across Africa, where renewable energy solar, whatnot, is, is, is only the middle class can afford or the wealthy can afford. This is not how when Climate justice movements, when groups across the world were, were thinking about climate justice or renewable energy or clean energy, it was not so that only the middle class can afford it or the wealthy, right. you know, yeah. this is so that this is something that, you know, we're thinking about renewable clean energy that is community owned you know, that the government actually subsidizes, not unlike what we are seeing about how uh, our our um, the Kenya Power, Kenya Power Corporation in Kenya, which is the biggest, not the biggest, the monopoly provider of, of, of electricity, you know, completely, completely interested in blocking access, you know, people being able to, you know, have access to solar energy, for example, right? It's thinking about how do we, you know, zero rate the the material,
0: right? You know,
1: so. for for this. So it's it's a it's it's that for me. I'd say that the solutions come to this: dismantle capitalism, reclaiming ideas of the commons. Mm-hmm. And by say when I say reclaiming, I don't mean being stuck in a past. I mean a past that is alive to the present. Right. Yeah. So it's that it. Reclaiming ideas of the commons, it's rejecting techno fixes,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? It's also thinking about uh, democracy, you know, and thinking about the full liberation of all Africans, all, all Africans, not just some Africans, not just some women, mm-hmm. not the women who can afford it, mm-hmm. not the who can afford it, but importantly, centering their lives and their aspirations on those on, of those on the front lines of the climate crisis the men, women who are on the front lines of this crisis and women in their diversity and, and whether it's gender non-conforming people, trans people and whatnot, thinking about centering them, those who are on the front lines of the crisis, but at the same time thinking about climate change as you know, one thing in a long chain of oppression and marginalization. So we are not just dismantling climate change, we're dismantling capitalism, we're dismantling transphobia, we're dismantling patriarchy, we're dismantling so much. So we have to see it at that. that the project is, I, I may be working on environmental questions, that's where I spend most of my time, but it's also thinking about labor questions. And I know I didn't talk about labor, but also thinking about work. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's thinking about, it's thinking about, I'll end this with, with, with this, with this, um, not analogy. I mean, I'd say analogy. Thinking, think about it this way. All of us have been invited to a party. Mm -hmm. There's the only thing that's available is a pot. That's the only thing. Okay. Someone has to think about um, putting on the fire, lighting the firewood. Mm-hmm. Someone else has to think about the salt. Someone has to think about the spices. Someone has to think about the meat. Someone has to think about the vegetables. Another person has to think about the venue, you know, cleaning clean it up. So it's at the end of the day, when we sit and eat that meal. Yeah. It isn't going to be because of one person. It's going to be because of how so many people have contributed. And, and, and one of my favorite, um, um, you know, one of my favorite feminist, um, authors and, and just feminists, Audrey Lord, she says two things. Um, there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. So climate change must be thought of in that way or liberating ourselves. You know, we cannot do silo politics. We have to think about, we don't live single issue lives. So there's no such thing as a single issue struggle. And the final thing in conclusion is that, you know, also something that Audrey Lord says, without community, there's no liberation. So if you think that we're just going to, liber- one group is going to liberate themselves. without community, there's no liberation. This is all hands on.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nyambura. I, I have learned so much. I know the listeners are going to, it's such a precious lesson you've given to us. And I hope, uh, I hope that this message can go around and around. And please, where can people follow you? And you're what <laughs> oh this is so funny because i'm
1: literally um on a social media break but uh, yeah but like i i will return soon but i i guess if you want to follow me on my social media accounts especially on twitter which i will return in the next few weeks it's um at miss nyambura let me spell it spell it m-s-n-y-a-m-b-u-r-a-h So, Miss Nyambura, that's if you want to follow me on my on my Twitter. If you don't find me today, look for me in in like a week when I've reactivated the account. I take social media breaks uh, once in a while. But also, um, if you want to email the African Ecofeminist Collective, which I convene, and we're a group of I'd say very wonderful uh, feminists from across the continent, really focused on radical. Popular feminist political education and the intersections of ecological justice. You can send us an email on African Ecofeminists Collective at Gmail.com. African Ecofeminists Collective at Gmail.com. So, um, but I'll give you the details if you want to put the details when you put out the podcast so people can have it and be able to reach us. And also, we also have a podcast. Um, on Anka FM, if you want to listen to us, you can look for uh, it's called African Ecofeminisms uh, or just the African Ecofeminist Collective. So there's a podcast we did last year when the pandemic struck and it's on the intersections of you know, health, um, ecology and labor. Uh, so an African feminist response uh, to COVID, but looking at these three intersections. So yeah, thank you so much. And I was I, so excited to speak to you, Prudence. Thank you so much to Akina Mama Africa, one of those organizations I have a lot of love and respect for. So this is such an honor and privilege to be on this podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Nyambura. And thank you so much, listeners. And thank you so much, Akina Mama, for making this possible. Until next time, bye-bye.